Well, good evening. Welcome to Redeemer OPC. My name's Dan Adams, and if you're visiting with us tonight, we're so glad that you're here, or if you're joining us online, uh, we want to extend a, a warm welcome uh, to, to each of, of y'all. Um, I've got a few announcements as we get started. First, uh, tonight following the service, we have our third Sunday food and fellowship uh, that's still taking place tonight. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Uh, it's a wonderful time to connect with uh, members of the church and, and, and those who are learning more about our church. Uh, so we'd encourage you to stick around following the service to enjoy that time. Uh, this coming Wednesday, Pastor Jeff is going to be leaving and he's going to be on vacation until uh, the following Wednesday. If you want to be a little begrudging, he is going to be in Florida enjoying 85 degree weather. He's reemphasized that to me multiple times. Uh, so while I'm here in Michigan in 30s, I'll think of you, Jeff, and your suffering. Uh, so please, if you have any pastoral concerns, uh, be sure to reach out to one of the other pastors or uh, your ruling elder. Uh, the, my third announcement is related to some new uh, mini booklets. Uh, you may have seen the stand out there in this cubby right there. Uh, we've got a couple of new ones. Uh, two that I wanted to highlight that I think are really great are uh, Grief in Your Child by Bob Kellerman. And Jim Neuheiser has uh, How to Love Difficult Parents. Uh, this one's not for kids. This is more of an adult's book of, of loving your parents as an adult. Uh, two topics that are, are really great to receive some counsel on, uh, things to maybe even read uh, before you're in that situation. Uh, so I'd encourage you to, to look through those booklets. Feel free to grab uh, what looks interesting to you and, and, and feel free to let me know uh, what you think. Uh, our last announcement, uh, the pastors were, were made aware that uh, Ray Brunius is in the hospital. Um, we're not quite sure what's going on. Uh, he's having some tests run, but we wanted to pray for him uh, before we started our service. So let's go to our God now. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we lift up our brother Ray uh, to you. Uh, we're not so sure what's going on. Uh, we know the doctors have ruled out some things, but they're still running tests to figure out uh, exactly uh, what's going wrong. We pray uh, that you would be near to him, uh, that you'd strengthen him, that you'd grant healing to his body, Lord. Uh, we pray for wisdom and discernment for uh, the physicians that treat him. Please also be with Bertha and uh, the family as uh, they're, they're rightly nervous about uh, how he is doing. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, comfort them uh, now in this time. Father, we pray that our church would be a church that would comfort those who are in the midst of, of difficult times. And we pray, Lord, that we would again think of him uh, often and lift him up in prayer. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, let's take a moment now and prepare to worship our God.
As we draw near to the throne room of grace, God calls us into his worship with Revelation 5. Uh, Revelation is this incredible book. Sometimes uh, it's referred to as the Apocalypse of John. And apocalypse is such an intimidating word, but most fundamentally it refers to uh, peeling back the curtain to show what is really happening in that moment. And we have that here. God pulls back the curtain to show John and us what is currently taking place, what we're doing even now as we gather to worship our God. So he invites us with this picture this evening. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lamb. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the God of mercy and grace. Lord, you are a shelter for those who are suffering. You are a savior for those who sin. Lord, we thank you that you are our God, that to you we can look for hope. Lord, that that the very things that we cannot do, we cannot provide lasting hope and joy. 
Lord, you provide abundantly in your son, Jesus. So set him before the eyes of our heart, Lord. Grant us the the faith that we need to believe. Believe that he is faithful and just to provide salvation, forgiveness of sin, redemption. Father, by your spirit, comfort us and challenge us in this service. May we leave a transformed people. Help us not merely to be stirred in an intellectual way only, but Lord, may we be moved, compelled to greater faith and belief in our Savior Jesus. Lord, you, you can do this, and so we ask, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship with knowing you.
You may be seated. Tonight uh, we have the honor of praying for the Westminster Theological Seminary. Just a little intro on them. They were founded almost 100 years ago, and founder J. Gretchen Machen vowed at that time that the seminary would not provide training of the customary superficial kind, but rather offer profound Christ-centered preparation. Pretty lofty goal, and it is still their mission today. So join me in prayer for Westminster. Lord, as we come this evening and we bring up Westminster Theological Seminary to you, we'd ask that you would be with them, Lord, be with all the people involved in that. We'd ask that they would stay true to providing profound Christ-centered training. We are grateful, Lord, for all of the staff, all of the faculty, including many former members of Redeemer, Todd Rester, John Curry, Jerry Temis. We're thankful, Lord, that they have uh, been able to train and then give of their service back to people to provide this highly needed, highly desired calling. We'd ask, Lord, that you'd be with all the students who have studied or are studying at Westminster, whether on campus or online. We'd ask that you would bless their learning, that they would have a deep understanding of the freeing message of the gospel. We'd ask, Lord, you'd continue to fund and provide funding for all those who desire to attend uh, Westminster and that they would be able to be able to focus on their studies and not on if they can continue to stay there due to financial reasons. And finally, Lord, we just ask that Westminster Theological Seminary will stay faithful, that they would continue to stay faithful in providing the profound Christ-centered preparation that we know the world needs more now than ever. In thy name we pray. Amen. If you would uh, stand and join us in singing, Jesus Paid It All.
Please join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Our God, it is good to be here again to worship you and to sing praises to you. We have just sung of how our Savior has paid the debt, the debt that we owed, and how he has washed us white as snow. We are so grateful for our Savior, Lord, whom you have provided for us. This evening, we also give thanks to you for the material blessings that you have provided for us. We are grateful for the beautiful weather again. You've provided each of us with food, food and shelter, loved ones that we hold dear, and we thank you for this, Lord. We ask that you would continue to bless relationships and help us to encourage one another in our faith, that our daily walk would be in a way that is honoring to you. We ask that you would be with your servant who will proclaim your word to us this evening and grant clarity of thought and speech, and may your word be planted in our hearts and bear fruit, that our faith might be strengthened. We need your spirit, O Lord. We ask that you would uh, fill us again. Bless also the tithes that are now to be received, and may they be used in the furtherance of your kingdom. All this we ask in our Savior's name. Amen.
Tonight we're opening our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We'll begin reading in Romans chapter 5 at verse 12, and I'm going to read through the end of that chapter. But I'll alert you to the fact that as we read, I'll be focusing on verses 12 through 14. And let me explain to you why I'm focusing just on those verses. Um, I've been guided in the Sunday evening service by the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's simply a document that explains basic truths about the Christian faith. And the last few times, we've been thinking about sin, what's wrong with the world. Remember, I asked that question, what's wrong with the world? It's not that we don't have enough resource. It's not that we haven't tried hard enough. It's that we have rebelled against God. So the question last time was, well, how did that happen? And it happened in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve rebelled against sin. Now, here's a question for you, and I just want to ask the children. If you are over the age of 16, in my book, you're practically an adult. So this question is for everyone under the age of 16. I want to tell you a story that happened to me when I was about 10 years old, and I want to ask you this question, was this fair? Back in the day, when I was young, my parents would take us to Pizza Inn for our birthdays. Pizza Inn, I don't even know if it exists anymore, but at that point, it was a place to go for birthday. They would sing happy birthday to you. They would light candles. It was a very big deal. And if you had a birthday, your whole family went home with balloons. And in our house, the bedrooms where I would sleep were one story higher. And on the way home, my mom said very specifically, keep your balloons on the main floor. If they go into your bedroom, you're going to be playing with them all night. You're not going to fall asleep. So keep your balloons on the main floor. When we got home, I went to get cleaned up for bed. And during that time, one person's balloon, there were two red balloons, my balloon and my sister's balloon, one of the red balloons made its way onto the upper floor. When I came back from taking a shower, my mom said, Jeffrey, sorry, why is your balloon up by your bedrooms when I said, keep them on the main floor? I said, Mom, I didn't do anything. It's not my red balloon. She said, I already talked to your sister, and she told me it was your balloon. So the next day, I don't mean to be disgusting in any way, but we had a small dog, and one of the less desirable jobs was to go into the backyard and clean up after the dog. You can imagine imagine that. My punishment was having to go outside and clean up after the dog, even though I can promise you I did not release that balloon. I was punished for my sister's misbehavior. How many of you think that's fair? If you think it's fair, raise your hand. One courageous boy. (laughs) So in the Shorter Catechism, we are told that the way that the problem of sin was passed from Adam to us was through representation. And the question we need to wrestle with, is that fair? Is it fair for someone else's sin... And the consequences of that sin to be passed along to us. If you can agree, that wasn't fair, and it's still not fair that I was punished for my sister's misbehavior. Why is it fair in the Bible that Adam and Eve's rebellion against God now affects us? That's the question and answer tonight, and I'm going to read this for you, then we'll read Romans chapter 5. 
The question is, did all mankind fall in Adam's transgression? The answer is, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, that is, everyone who came after him, descending from him by ordinary generation, that is, as all babies are born, so all babies descended from Adam and Eve, our first parents, all these sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So the catechism says, Adam's fall, if I can quote the Puritans, the early Puritans, in Adam's fall we sinned all. Is that fair? To answer that question, let's look at Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was, uh, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God. In 1900, none of you were alive at that point. There was something that took place in Paris. It was a great exhibition. It was the hope of a new century, newspapers proclaimed. The exhibition drew over 50 million visitors at a time travel was far more difficult than today. It was a celebration of optimism. Nations could compete without war was the message. Education would reach and transform the masses. And science is the answer to man's problems. Countries brought examples of their engineering ingenuity and manufacturing might, including the U.S. in particular, that was emerging at that point as a superpower, not only militarily, but in manufacturing. And in the United States at that point in our existence, wages were skyrocketing, and we were producing way more than Europe could even match. Life was going to be great. No more need for war. No more need for disagreement. We could avoid war through diplomacy. Just sit down and work it out. 
We'll eradicate diseases through science and medical advances. We'll produce more and more and more until there are no poor at all. Why would there have to be? Life will absolutely be better. (laughs) Do you know what happened about 10 years later? World War I. And then if a few years later, World War II. And up to the point that's just the last couple of years as we struggled through COVID, you might listen to this fat optimism and think to yourself, what in the world are these people thinking? It's unrealistic. But I don't want you to smile too broadly, sort of in condescension. I'm guessing that most of us as well have wondered at times if we can simply solve the questions of our life apart from God. Or maybe we've swung so far that we've become cynical and we think there is no answer at all. What I want you to see tonight from Romans chapter 5, especially verses 12 through 14, is that the solution to our problem is couched in what is wrong. Until you know what's wrong, you really can't figure out the answer. And the problem, according to Romans 5, is sin. And it's not just sin, but the problem of sin is far worse than any of us would really conceive of. And that is, it not only has made a mess of this world, but the problem affects each and every one of us. No one escapes. I can guarantee you, no matter who you are, you are a sinner. You've rebelled against God. Why? Because you're alive. You're a child of Adam and Eve. And it is unavoidable, since you are their child, that you are a sinner. The question is, is that fair? That you would be accounted a sinner because of a rebellion in a garden thousands of years ago. Let me explain this to you, that it is absolutely fair. In fact, I'm going to say it goes beyond fair to better than fair. And I want to explain that in three ways. The problem is not, first of all, what we assume. That's the first thing. The second is the problem comes with the proof so that we know exactly what the problem is. And then third, there is a better than advertised solution to the problem. What I want to say to you before I say those three things, explain those three things, is that Romans, in this portion of the book, is explaining something much larger than just the problem of sin. In fact, you could see that from the portion I read after verses 12 through 14. We're not just talking about sin, we're talking about the solution to sin. So as you listen to the first part of this sermon, thinking about what's wrong... Just hold in your mind, put on your mental shelf somewhere that the problem is leading to a solution. In fact, that's really what this part of Romans is about, the solution. But again, as I say, in order to understand the solution, you have to know what the problem is. And first of all, the problem is not what we would assume. That's the first thing. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, the apostle says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's a logic to what the apostle is saying. I want to explain that. Paul says, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin entered the world and it spread to absolutely everyone. Death came through this rebellion called sin, And death spread to all men because all sinned. Here's the question I want to consider with you first. 
Is it genuinely true that all people are sinners? Do we know that for sure? Or you can imagine, as some have conceived, imagine a perfect place that is unspoiled by any effect of human beings. A child is born, placed on that island all by themselves, given everything that they need to thrive. Is that child a sinner? The Bible's answer is absolutely yes. We are not sinners because we simply imitate sinners, although if you're a parent, you can see how your child imitates the older sinners in their house. So it's not as though imitation doesn't matter. But it is the same where foundationally, fundamentally, we are sinners and therefore sin. It is not that we are shown sin and become sinners. We are sinners naturally. In order to demonstrate that is true, the apostles points us to two things. First, death came through sin. In order to prove that this sin affects everyone, everyone is touched by sin. This is a question for the adults. It's more appropriate for those of us who are older. How many of you expect that you'll never die? (laughs) Silly question, right? All of us expect we're going to die at some point. Some of us, when we hit those magical milestones called 50 years of age, start thinking about that a bit more than we did when we were 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 or when we were 5 years old. You can start to see the future, as someone noted to me at my 50th birthday party, you're closer to the end than the beginning, uh, most certainly. And that's true. We're all going to die. I thought in preparation for the sermon, I should note how some of us have talked about death in our culture. So I selected a few what I consider juicy quotes. Seneca said, death is the wish of some, the relief of many, and the end of all. Shakespeare said, all that live must die, passing through nature to eternity. (laughs) My favorite, the contemporary sage Garrison Keillor, said, they say such nice things about people at their funerals that it makes me sad that I'm going to miss mine by just a few days. (laughs) Those who have experienced death, the death of someone near to them, know the depth of the sorrow that comes with death. I can remember being relatively young when my grandparents passed, at least compared to where I am now, and this awful, terrible thing called death ripped apart the relationship I had with each of them. I remember the funerals of a couple of my grandparents specifically, my cousin singing, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, at my paternal grandfather's funeral. Or at my maternal mother's, my maternal grandmother's funeral, the preacher speaking from Psalm 90, verse 12, he said, to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Those are moments that stand out. You remember those moments. Whether it's a death of a grandparent, maybe a spouse, maybe even a child, as painful as that is. There is no avoiding the fact that everyone's life in this place is not only headed for death, but you can see evidence of death all around you. It would be foolish of me to say, there is no death in our world. You'd say, are you crazy? Of course there's death. I've experienced I see it. I'm headed there. Of course there's death. That's Paul's first part of his argument. 
I'm going to prove to you that sin affects us all and the way in which sin has come to affect us all by proving that death actually is here and death has come because of sin. The next stage in his argument comes in the following verse where Paul argues that this universal death is rooted in a deeper problem. It is not just that all have sinned and therefore there is death in our world, but he says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now maybe you could reason and say, well, there's death in our world, but it's not really my fault. I'm guessing most of us have not taken someone else's life. You can say, I'm not really responsible for my grandfather who died of cancer. How's that my fault? I didn't do anything wrong, and my friend was killed in a car accident when I was in high school. That's not really my fault, is it? So how is it possible that it's death, which is the consequence of sin, is somehow my fault? Why does it matter that all have sinned? Well, I would tell you tonight, this is a much more difficult thing for us to agree is true. I'll acknowledge that. But there are three things to understand about Paul's claim at the end of verse 12. First, the Bible says that sin, as I've talked about previously, is either failing to do what God says or doing what God says not to do. That is to say, sin has a referent point outside of ourselves. It is not simply that the world is broken, or that things are distorted, or people make mistakes, or relationships are in trouble. The Bible says the fundamental problem is that there is sin, which is either a failure to obey God or fail to do what God says. That referent point makes all the difference in how we understand our relationship with the Creator now. That sin which is an offense, let me put it as strongly as I can, it is cosmic rebellion against an almighty God. That cosmic rebellion is the problem in life. That's the nature of sin. If it were only a horizontal problem, then we would expect over time things would get better. Problems between people would be overcome. But is that really what you see? I'm not asking you to just look at your own life. I'm going to ask you on the grand scope of things. Do you realize that there is more human slavery now than at any point in human history? What happened to our advancement as a human race? As much as we bemoan the fact that our country has a history, a terrible history of human slavery, why haven't we as a world advanced beyond the points that slavery is now eradicated. If it's just a problem between us, why don't we get along better? It's not just working out human relationships. Something is fundamentally wrong in us that is an offense to God that causes the problems we see in our world. The second thing I want to say about the end of verse 12 is that that means that what is wrong in the world cannot eventually be overcome by what we do. If sin is rebellion against God, then what I do can never make that up to Him. Or do you think the opposite? 
If you do, let me just review your day with you. Were you frustrated with anyone today? Were you angry? Were you bitter? Did you look at other people and wonder to yourself, why aren't they giving me what I want? Did you look at your employer as you think about tomorrow, thinking I'm not being fairly treated? Were you lustful? Were you unkind? Were you jealous? There's a whole bunch of things that fall under those sins. And if the problem is merely this, and we need to make it up to God, and we can try to do that, eventually it'll get better. Well, how are you doing on that? Maybe you see small bits of growth over time, but if you've got to make it up to God, it means there's got to be a point where all of a sudden you are sinless, and then you start to make it up. And you're going to have to undo all the wrong that you have done. If you're in a marriage, just let me ask whether you can do that even with your spouse. It's a fool's errand. The Bible says it can't work. We will never be able to do it. Which means a lot of the solution that we try simply will not work. As I noted a couple of weeks ago, throwing more money at the problem. Just taking more time. Having a conviction that we just need to educate more. It's not as though those things are wrong inherently. They just are never able to answer the real problem. Because the, par- the, the problem goes beyond behavior only to a matter of our heart in rebellion against God. Which leads me to the third thing I need to say about this last phrase. That Paul argues not only that human beings have sinned, but that we sin because we're sinners. Let me explain to you this way, and here's really the nub of tonight's sermon Does anyone say nub anymore? Here's the heart of this evening. Did I even say this morning sermon? Oh, my word. I made a promise to my wife after the last couple of weeks messing up illustrations. I would not mess up an illustration today. So far, I haven't, I don't think. But I've still misspoken. It's natural to humanity to make mistakes. Do I make mistakes and therefore become a sinner? Or am I a sinner and therefore make those mistakes? The Bible argues the latter. And this passage is one of the primary passages in the Bible in which we derive what we call the doctrine of federalism. That is that Adam was appointed by God to represent us. So when he fell, so did every single one of us, whoever will live. We are counted guilty in Adam, and our nature was corrupted by the fall. And I'm going to guess, as I've said at the beginning, that might strike you on the face of it as unfair. But I simply want to put it this way to you. Is it really? How can you know that it's unfair? Can you with confidence say that it is not fair? That God would determine that we would be represented in Adam. And because we are represented in Adam, when he fell, so did we. We became sinners who then sin. And that sin develops into death. And this sin encompasses, encompasses us all. Is that unfair? Is it unfair tonight for you to say to God, how dare you include me? It is not righteous that you would do it. Can you say that to God? Do you have a standing to do so? Are you morally perfect? 
Do you have the account of a life perfectly lived to say to our triune, holy, high and lifted up God, the way you have determined to do this is wrong? While you're contemplating that, let me show you something from verses 13 and 14. And I want to cover this rather quickly. How do we know that death is rooted in sin, an offense against God that brings, that begins in the depths of who we are? Verse 13 gives us two possibilities about the source of sin. The first is that sin is present because there is a law that offended by what we did. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're riding down Fulton and you pass by a Kent County Sheriff's deputy at 55 miles an hour. Is he going to pull you over? Is he? Well, the answer, of course, is it depends. Is the speed limit 45 there or 35 there and you're going 55? One of the ways that Paul says we can understand sin and the nature of sin is by offending a law. And it's true, when we offend laws, we see sin. But now we have to back up and ask, what happens before the law came in history at Mount Sinai? Was it still possible to be sinners before the law came? You know, so Paul is doing is driving to the very depth of who we are, that we are sinners. There's no escaping it. In verse 14, he goes on to say, the second possibility is that sin is deeper and that sin was present even before the law of Moses was given. Sin existed and it was demonstrated in its comparison to the law. But it existed even before the law was given. Death is present because of sin and sin is there because of its root. And that sin continues to exist and to affect each and every one of us. Which brings me tonight to the real point of what I want to tell you. If you go back to that question, is it fair that we are counted sinners because of the rebellion of Adam? Is it fair? One of the ways I've challenged your thinking is to ask you, do you have a right to object to what God determined to do? Are you righteous enough to do so? Do you have a standing morally to say to the God of the universe tonight, how dare you hold me accountable? If for no other reason tonight, I would suggest to you that because of God's greatness, His transcendent, His power, if this is what God determined to do, then we should be in submission to that. We shouldn't be angry or frustrated we should be in submission to that. But let me add something else to it. I said at the beginning, it's more than fair. What do I mean by it's more than fair? If you look in your Bible to verse 18, I'll show you why it's more than fair. In fact, you don't even have to go that far. You can go to verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through the one man's trespass... Much, uh, much more have the gift, a uh, grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Look there now at verse 18. In fact, if you compare verse 12 to verse 18, you'll notice there's almost a parallelism, parallelism there. They're very similarly written. 
It's almost like verse 18 is meant to address something that's raised in verse 12. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Simply read that this way. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Paul's established that. The problem is the depth of our being. God determined it was so. And so it is. As one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Do you see the parallel between the two? If in God's great wisdom we fell in Adam, so also in God's great wisdom we also are represented in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment. If on the one hand we say, God determined we would be represented in Christ, we may not like it, it feels as though it's unfair, but we accept it's true. I don't want you to leave this service tonight merely accepting that is true. What I want you to do is believe that the representation we had in Adam means, hear this, the representation we have in Jesus makes your salvation possible. If we've been represented in Adam, we can also be represented in Jesus. If in Adam we all fell, in the second Adam that is in Jesus, we have the possibility of life. Let me replay the scenario that I raised to you. Imagine coming home from Pizza Inn. And my mother's saying to me after I'm all cleaned up and I'm in my pajamas, she said, tonight because of something wonderful your sister had done, tomorrow this would have been at the height of my expectations as a child. You don't need to go to school tomorrow. Is that fair? That I would receive benefits from what someone else had done? It's not fair. It goes beyond fair. It's gracious that God would give to us something we do not deserve. It's set up by the paradigm of how we have fallen. If we have fallen in Adam, then we can receive the grace that comes in Jesus Christ. And that means all that I've mentioned to you before. Are you morally upright? Are you perfect? Are you going to make it up to God? How are you doing in making it up? Have you really worked hard today? Have you been perfect today? How about yesterday, the day before? Have you been truthful? Have you been kind? Have you been pure? Have you been patient? Because of Jesus Christ, even if you have to answer no to some of those, perhaps many or all of them, because of representation in Jesus Christ, you can still appear before the holy God of the universe, pure and acceptable to Him. Do you see how it's more than fair? It makes your salvation possible. I know that some of us come to life and we see all kinds of difficult, terrible, heartbreaking situations. Maybe we're experiencing them in our life now. And maybe you even look at your life. I remember talking to one man when I was a chaplain, actually many men, who came at Christianity with the notion that Christianity's point was to make people better, more moral, that they would become sort of better sorts of people. That's what Christianity was all about. And so Christianity was simply one version of that, along with Islam, Judaism, Shintoism, Taoism, whatever world religion. It's, they're all just about making better people. And then talking with these men in prison about the radical nature of sin, that we have rebelled against God. 
We have taken what God has made good and in Adam we have rebelled to the point there is no hope for us because we're sinners. That's our character. It's our nature. We sin because we're sinners. There's no way of escaping that in spite of our desire to try harder and to do more. We never really make it out of that hole. In fact, we keep digging day after day after day and having men say to me, sometimes crying, I know exactly what you're saying. It's exactly what I sense. Where is the hope in that? And I would say to them this, in Adam there is no hope, but in the second Adam there's freedom. And I say the same thing to you tonight. That's Paul's point. When you can understand the depth of your sin, how awful it is, and the way in which we stand before God, then you can look to your second representative, the second Adam, Jesus. And by saying to him simply, I believe in you, I trust in you, I'm willing to follow you and give myself entirely to you, those who have fallen in Adam can now live and rise in Jesus Christ. And that means, friends, we have hope. And that's what I mean to offer to you tonight. Not some stale doctrine simply of what the Bible claims to be true, something called federalism, but to give you the hope that in the representation of Jesus, there is freedom in the future. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, through the twists and turns of this passage, even if it may not, is clearly apparent the argument that Paul is making. Still, the main point rings true, that if we foul in Adam, we can live in Christ. Remove from us those tendencies to want to say to you as Almighty God, you're not fair, it's unjust. Instead, turn our hearts in thankfulness to say, yes, it's not fair because we receive far more than we deserve. We receive the mercy of Jesus Christ. I pray that through your word, through your spirit's work, we would hold on to that. We would grab hold with everything that is in us. And that would be our hope for today, tomorrow, and eternity. Father, thank you for this passage tonight. We pray that you were honored in it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, I will glory in my Redeemer.
If you didn't hear when we started tonight, we have some food and fellowship afterward. Um, if you are here and new, you're welcome to stay. Enjoy that. Don't feel awkward about staying, even if you didn't bring anything. And if you were an ordinary member and you just forgot to bring food, yeah, you can stay as well. <laughs> Receive this blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.